You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. I would like to welcome everyone here. My name is Pete Betke. I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center and a university professor of economics and philosophy here at George Mason University. And uh, more importantly, uh, for this occasion, I'm a proud alumnus of GMU's economics department and a former student of James Buchanan. Um, Before we get started today, I'd like to gratefully acknowledge uh, the support of the Mercatus leadership, including Dan Rothschild and Tyler Cowan, as well as the university leadership, uh, which includes Dan Hauser, who's here, but also the dean and the provost and uh, our university president, and especially the financial support of various foundations that are listed in the back of your program um, uh, that have uh, provided financial support to enable us to do programs like this, especially the John Templeton Foundation, whose uh, significant support in 2012 enabled us to um, start this, uh, this program and develop it. Um, I was a student at GMU from 1984 to 1988, and so I was here when the rumors swirled in 1984 that Jim would be honored with the Nobel. And, um, and also, let me just point out to folks here, it is a real Nobel. The Nobel Foundation has acknowledged it's a real Nobel, so no tweets right now, it's not the Nobel or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, all of us uh, at that time, hearing all the stuff about our professor going to win, we were collectively, of course, disappointed uh, when he didn't win. And in particular, who won was uh, for the Stone Geary production function, and which is very valuable contribution. But to those of us interested in Jim Buchanan, it was a big like, again, you know, like that kind of thing. And Buchanan picked us up and taught us to dare to be different. And that became a kind of a galvanizing uh, period of time between 1984 and 86. Uh, Jim constantly was pushing us to dare to be different. Uh, As he would say all the time, why would we want to be a cheap imitation of MIT on the Potomac? Uh, We have to be something different. Um, And then I was here in 1986 uh, when, in fact, Jim was awarded the Nobel Prize. And what a great day that was for Jim and the Center for Study of Public Choice, for the field of political economy, and for George Mason University. Um, But as Jim would also stress in his own reflections on the prize, it was a great day for all all of us preparing to live an academic life as a slightly out of sync economist. The outsiders, or as Jim would put it later, the great unwashed scattered throughout the academic boondocks. It was Buchanan's great skill to convince all of us that we too could achieve great things in academics while being different from, as he would put it, the Eastern establishment economists uh, of Harvard and MIT if we were just willing to have a work ethic to consistently apply the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair and to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, day after day, week after week, year after year. It could happen to you. Work ethic and the courage of your conviction And as Buchanan stressed, more importantly, the courage to withstand the critique of your convictions and you'll achieve uh, whatever it is that you set out to do. So I remember that day, October 16th, 1986, like it was yesterday. As the years passed, people often forgot a few things about how Buchanan handled that day. 
and more importantly, how he handled the subsequent backlash in some of the media outlets such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. First, I want to point out, he was gracious. The very first remark that he made was to acknowledge the contribution of Gordon Tulloch in his work on the calculus of consent and subsequent uh, development of the field of public choice afterwards. Never ran away from that, always acknowledged that. That was a very important part. Second, he was proud of his very humble beginnings. He told all the major newspapers and TV stations that they had to wait until he did an interview with the Middle Tennessee State News College newspaper. So he told the New York Times, you got to wait, Washington Post, you have to wait, and I'm going to go talk to the Middle Tennessee uh, College newspaper. Um, that was awesome. Third, he was courageous in the face of the criticisms and sought, rather than to get angry, but to e explain the basic insight in as plain a language as possible to stress the importance of basic economic reasoning to understand and inform the world of practical affairs. As he would stress to all of us, it takes varied iterations to force alien concepts upon reluctant minds. Should never tire of trying to straighten out uh, people about the basics of what you're doing. He also summed up his own position as you don't let the fox guard the chicken coop, uh, which I thought was very good. And by the way, you know, James Tobin just earlier said you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So this was a very calmy, uh, homey kind of thing. That day in October 30 years ago changed the trajectory of this university and set it on a path from a medium-sized regional commuter school to an R1 international university that it is today. I have had the privilege of being involved in the Buchanan um, archive project. Um, and in fact, the library, as I was told to make sure that you knew this, the library at GMU will have a special display this entire month on Buchanan's Nobel. And I hope that after the events today, or for those of you in the, the region, that you take some time and go visit uh, that collection. It's in the newly remodeled Fenwick Library, um, and it's in the special collections. Um, Anyway, to celebrate uh, that day uh, in the way that Jim would have appreciated, a critical engagement with ideas focused on constantly improving our understanding of the world. As just a quick note, I last spoke to Jim a few months before he passed away. Um, he was just, she had just presented a paper, and I was engaged in a, ca a casual chit-chat with him about how he was doing and, uh, and whatnot, and he turned to me, remember he's in his mid-90s, or close in his 90s, and he says, well, I don't think this paper is working. I think I'm going to have to do some revising. And I always love that as my last memory of him because that's a Jim Buchanan that I want to remember, always working on improving his arguments, always revising uh, to improve his exposition, always perfecting his craft as an economist, a political economist, and a social philosopher. Onwards and upwards, as he often ended communications. That is what we intend to do today. So we start with the keynote lecture by Mike Munger, former president of the Public Choice Society, former editor of Public Choice, former department chair of political science at Duke. Mike is the perfect person to give this talk. I first learned of Mike Munger back in those student days in 1985. I, like many people, co-authored with Bob Tullison um, for those of you involved in public choice, you should be chuckling a little bit because Bob had tons of co-authors. Um, and Tullison told me that I had to get in touch with this guy, Mike Munger, at the FTC because he had all the relevant data from a study he had done um, at Washington University at the Wiedenbaum Center. 
Mike graciously talked to me on the phone and gave me everything that Bob suggested that we get from him. And I ended up by writing my first co-author publication, Grad School with Bob Tullison. I'm not sure I have told Mike the other part of that story, but when Tullison told me to get in touch with Mike Munger, he told me that that is the best young economist around and that I should listen to everything that he has to say because I would learn how to be a good economist. Um, Tullison himself was a natural born economist and he wasn't actually one that gave praise very easily. So I'm sure Mike will appreciate uh, that, you know, that lesson. He told me to listen and learn and I've been listening and learning ever since. Mike is the author most recently of Choosing in Groups, which is a significant contribution to public choice and constitutional political economy. He wrote that book with his son, Kevin. Um, he is currently working on a book, Tomorrow 3.0. And you can all listen and learn from Mike by downloading multiple episodes of Econ Talk, where he and host Russ Roberts tackle a wide range of, of issues from observations of our daily life to the most pressing issues of public policy that we face. Please join me in welcoming Mike Munger. Thanks, Mike. So hey, I'm really honored to be given this chance to speak. I recognize, given the quality of the panel that's going to follow me, my role here is clearly just to be the eye candy. <laughs> Actually, the only person who laughs at that joke is my wife. She finds it hilarious. I, let me give you the, the punch, settle down. <laughs> let me give you the punchline uh, before I tell the rather longer joke. What I'm going to say about Jim Buchanan is as someone who is a convert to Buchananism. So my Choosing in Groups book is almost completely a reinterpretation of some of the spatial theory work that I'd done before through a Buchanan lens. So I think that the two themes that I want to talk about, which if you get nothing else from my talk today, you remember, are first a concept that Jim used often that I think is sometimes misunderstood and belittled unfairly, and that is the relatively absolute absolutes. The relatively absolute absolutes. And the other is his notion of politics as exchange. So the, the two things, politics as exchange and the relatively absolute absolutes, is what I'm going to try to use as an entering wedge to help understand what I think is the contribution, the goals, and some of the achievements that Jim came up with. Sorry. There. <clears throat> so in a way, one of the things that Jim's often criticized for is that it seems that there are these contradictions. And one of the things that always reminded me of Jim when I see it is this famous passage from F. Scott Fitzgerald, where he says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still be able to retain the ability to function. So you should be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. So we have no chance of progressing here. Let's get to work, is pretty much what Jim would say to himself every morning. And one of the things that was my favorite thing about him, and I'll talk about this several times, Jim and I in a way connected because we both came from extremely poor backgrounds. Now he went to Middle Tennessee State and I went to Davidson, which is a rather different atmosphere, but I had to work as a waiter and I waited on my, my classmates and often felt like I was really sort of subjugated by that. Of course, I was glad to have the job, 
but it was an embarrassing thing to have to wait on your own classmates. So he and I both had that sense that, well, I think it's, it's fair to say we both had a chip on our shoulder as a result of having gone through that experience. I didn't quite have the same attitude towards the Northeastern establishment that he did. But Jim was always, there was always a conflict between the different parts of his thought. And he would say that there was a tension, but it was really very productive. But the, the thing that's a, that was great about him, one of the things that was great about him was this wry, ironic sense of self-mockery. So after he won the Nobel Prize, he would often say, if some days you do not imagine that you're a fraud, you simply lack imagination. <laughs> and this is someone who had won a Nobel Prize, looking in the mirror and saying, I don't know if this is a joke, but I'm going to go do it. <laughs> so it was that ability to, ho to hold those two opposed ideas in his mind at the same time that made him so productive. So, my thesis, so that you remember, is the keys to understanding are politics is exchanged and the relatively absolute absolutes. And I'm going to define each of those. But politics is exchanged is something that's not often recognized as being part of public choice, though it was at the outset. The original name of the journal Public Choice, we now think of a public choice, was papers in non-market decision making. So it was about designing institutions that would create a discovery process through which groups of people could make themselves better off, through which Pareto improvements could be achieved. Usually economics we think of as being a cooperative process that's self-organizing, through which groups of people can make themselves better off by mutual, mutually consented exchange. Well, by analogy, politics for Buchanan was the agreement on a set of rules or procedures that were non-market by which groups of people could make themselves better off. And I think that aspect of public choice is often lost, at least in the caricatures that are made outside of the discipline, and sometimes by the way that it's characterized even by people who are insiders. So we would do well to remember Jim's contribution. So I do want to remind you that public choice was quite a large phenomenon, and a co-author and longtime friend of mine William Mitchell wrote in 1988 a sort of retrospective about 25 years of public choice, which at the time in 1988 seemed like a long time. And of course, even now that was a long time ago, almost 30 years. The three branches of public choice that he identified, that Bill identified, were Virginia political economy, Rochester positive political theory, and Indiana institutionalism. And I don't know that people would still identify that as being part of a cohesive public choice agenda. It may not have been that cohesive then, but each of those have important aspects of what we might now think of as being public choice. I think Jim might have, particularly after he won the Nobel Prize, found rather charming John Maynard Keynes' self-deprecating preface to the general theory, which was published in 1936, of course, and Keynes lived before the Nobel Prize, which is a Nobel Prize, was founded. So presumably Keynes would have at least been a candidate for it. But in his preface, he said something that I think many Nobel Prize winners have probably felt since then, that the critics are likely going to fall into two groups, one of which says we've learned nothing new, and the other is this is quite wrong. The cool thing about the response to Jim winning is people said both. So in particular, uh, Robert Lekatchman, in his 1986 New York Times response, and the reason I remember this was I had just arrived at the University of Texas Government Department, and this New York Times 
article went up on about a third of the doors of my colleagues. So we, Texas was a somewhat divided department. Now, I can't resist saying, here's a picture of Mr. LeCatchman. And he was a professor at Lehman College in New York. He looks a little bit like a pink Volkswagen Beetle running down the road with the doors open. <laughs> and in case you can't imagine that. <laughs> but let us take his critique seriously. So what he said, and I'm going to pull this out so that I can turn around better. What he said was, this is, this is a, a quote from the, the New York Times um, article. As a founder of public choice theory, Mr. Buchanan has extended the imperial grasp of the free market model to politics. Other Chicago-trained or influenced scholars have applied the logic of self-interest to other choices, selection of marriage partners, decisions to bring the world few. So he's talking about Becker and other people. It's odd, I think, to think of Buchanan as being of a piece with his Chicago colleagues, because it's actually really pretty different. But it is interesting to think that that was the, the first response. So Mr. Buchanan's contribution is an argument that politicians are powerfully motivated by self-interest. The novelty, if any, so there's the not new part. In this discovery is his claim that self-interest is the only force operating upon them. Those who linger on the imperfections of private markets refuse to reduce all human, being, human behavior to simple self-interest. Well, there's the wrong part. So it's both not new and wrong. Nobel Prizes are not awarded to physicists who rediscover Isaac Newton. Yet, public choice theory resurrects the Adam Smith of the wealth of nations, so it's not new. Down here, it is as if an award were split between an evolutionist and a scientific creationist. So it's wrong. I think to compare Jim to a scientific creationist is perhaps a bit harsh as being entirely outside the mainstream, but it was interesting that it was this, this person thought Mr. LeCatchman, Professor LeCatchman, saw it simultaneously as being of a piece with the Chicago agenda and yet as if it were scientific creationism. So I think this criticism is probably unduly harsh. The reason I wanted to bring it up, because Pete had mentioned the New York Times response, this is sort of the conventional response. And people said, well, it, it's obvious and it's obviously wrong. Well, let's take the critique a little bit seriously for a moment and say, what is it that Buchanan actually was trying to accomplish? How does it fit in with and how does it differ from the larger public choice agenda? So we might call this behavioral symmetry or politics without romance. And that is usually reserved for the claim, and we can put it this way, Alistair Cook, in responding for the BBC, said that public choice rests on the homely but important observation that politicians are, after all, no different from the rest of us. Now, that's probably right in the sense, and let me say I'm happy to share this PowerPoint. If you, I'm going through a lot of quotes here. So just send me an email at munger at duke.edu, and I'm happy to send you the whole PowerPoint, because it, it might be useful if there's some project you're working on where some of this would be helpful. So rests on the important but homely observation is probably right. That's fair enough. My good friend, a person I respect, Dan Damico, said, the study of public choice is quite simply the application of economics to the realm of political decision making. James Buchanan termed this applied practice 
behavioral symmetry. I think that's wrong, with all due respect to Dan. It is not quite simply that. That's something. Certainly behavioral symmetry is important, but it is not the entirety of public choice, and it is certainly not the entirety of Jim Buchanan's thought. Now, Brennan and Buchanan, I think, show where they came from. What their public choice in some ways grew in response to the orthodox theory, which claimed that the difference was complete. People who worked for the state were interested in the public interest. People who worked in the private sector were interested only in profits and their own self-interest. Consumers were different from voters. Now, that could in principle be true, but it's odd to have an assumption of complete divorce of the two sets of motivations. So really all public choice was trying to do is say at least some self-interest is likely to figure into this. Furthermore, behavioral symmetry doesn't imply that everyone's self-interested. What it implies is we are self-interested to the same extent in markets and in politics. Maybe I buy fair trade coffee, maybe I participate, I don't litter, I do things that are public spirited in markets, maybe I also do that in the public sector. What's odd is just to divide people's behavioral motivation arbitrarily. That's what they're objecting to. They're not saying everybody is always selfish in everything that they do. And that, that really is quite a difference. So in some ways, one of the things that are frustrating about Jim are some of the frustrations that people also had with uh, one of my other advisors. I have to admit, Barry is pri primarily to blame. He could have stopped this by, uh, since I was his graduate student, but he, he's waited too long now. But one of my other advisors was Douglas North, and Doug had this definition of institutions that just drove people mad. Because an institution was, human, human institutions are humanly devised rules of the game that shape and direct human behavior. So we also, for, for North, we would have organizations, which are human optimizing responses that are designed to institutions. So if you asked him, well, congressional committees, are those institutions or organizations? He would say, well, it depends. It could, it, it, it could depend on the context. So it seemed like he wasn't defining it, but what it was was a dynamic concept. And Buchanan's thought has some of the same properties. And if you're just looking for a set of definitions that you can write down, you're going to be frustrated. If instead you're trying to use it as a method that teaches you about the world, it's really great. And that's one of the reasons that Buchanan is thought of so highly. So the three essential features of public choice are methodological individualism, behavioral symmetry, and politics as exchange. Now, in terms of Jim's own intellectual fathers, the people that he thought of as having been most influential, they were Newt Vixell and Frank Knight. Now, if we look at Jim, one of the things that I've noticed is that he trimmed his mustache exactly the way Frank Knight did. <laughs> so the, you know, just a lot of people have mustaches, but it comes down over their lip. It comes up off the lip. So. Uh, now, one of the things that I think is striking is that Vixell and Knight were earnest. And Jim is pretty ironic. And some of the, the things that were fun about Jim when he was in a puckish mood, which he was not always in. But if he was in a puckish mood, he could be quite funny. So again, there's this tension between two different sides, having two different ideas that are in opposition. So I heard him laugh about the fact that he had a dedicated Nobel Prize winner parking spot at Carroll Hall. 
Well, that's ridiculous. I, that's just stupid. If you park there, though, there was going to be an ass whooping. <laughs> that was his parking spot. But he did think it was funny that he had a parking spot. So there's these two opposed ideas, and they were in his mind, and he didn't crack up. So methodological individualism, I think, is often misunderstood as a philosophical or ethical statement. And in fact, it derives at least back to Max Weber, who claimed that maybe for sociology we're interested in groups, but the subjective understanding of action in sociology, those collectivities, must be treated as solely the resultants and context of the particular acts of individual persons, since an individual alone is the subjective bearer of meaningful oriented action. You have to start with individuals. So it means nothing more than that. It's an analytical premise. Now, maybe people will add up into groups, but you have to start with individuals. And so there is a distinction, and Weber says it's a tremendous misunderstanding to think that an individualistic method should involve what is in any conceivable sense an individualistic system of values. So it's just a methodological claim. That's what methodological individualism is. Second, behavioral symmetry. And this is from uh, one of Buchanan's heroes, Vixell. Neither the executive nor the legislative body, or even less the deciding majority, are in reality what the ruling theory tells us they should be. They are not pure organs of the community with no thought other than to promote the common weal. Members of the representative body are, in the overwhelming majority of cases, precisely as interested in the general welfare as are their constituents, neither more nor less. So it's not true that we're saying people are only self-interested. What we're saying is that people are pretty much the same regardless of the context they're in. Now what we can do is look at differences in institutions and relative prices to make predictions about their behavior. They may behave differently because they're in a different institutional setting. But in terms of behavior and objectives, it's a mistake to think that people are more or less self-interested in the different settings. And then for politics as exchange, it would seem to be a blatant injustice if someone should be forced to contribute towards the cost of some activity which does not further his interests or may even be diametrically opposed to them. Now, Todd, yesterday at the LEC, uh, for some of you, you heard him talk about the fact that there's a trade-off between free riding and forced riding. And Todd also rightly said that there's, Todd's wiki I'm talking about, he also rightly said that there's no solution to this. Well, maybe there's no perfect solution, but we have to decide. We actually have to make choices. We have to design institutions that choose some level of this trade-off. So if we are not able to compel people to obey their agreements, we're actually denying a kind of liberty to them. If I cannot make binding commitments, I lose some of my own liberty. If I can't sign a binding contract, I'm not in a position where I can live as a free and responsible individual. I would like to be able to make promises that I, other people expect me to keep. Well, if that's true, we're going to have to have some kind of enforcement mechanism. It may not be the state, but we're going to need some kind of enforcement mechanism. So I think in addition to those three elements of public choice, there's four unique Jim, Jim Buchanan elements and this really is the heart of what I want to say. The rest of it, I think, you all know pretty well. First is philosophical anarchism. We have to show that there's cause for coercion. So neither force nor the Eichmann defense is automatically justified. And I often horrify undergraduates at Duke 
by asking them if they know the Eichmann defense, and of course many of them do. The Eichmann defense was when Adolf Eichmann, in, during his trial, uh, tried to say, the only reason that I killed all those Jews or put them on those trains was that I was just following orders. Well, if, if you think that just following orders is not a defense, it means that you're a philosophical anarchist. You either accept the Eichmann defense or you're a philosophical anarchist. That's the only choices that you have. It means that the state can give you orders that you are not obliged to obey. If I'm not obliged to obey the orders of the state, how am I supposed to tell? Because remember, Eichmann also would have been shot if he had not obeyed the orders. So he was kind of in a bad spot. So philosophical anarchism is just the position that we're not automatically obliged to obey the orders of the state. Now, Buchanan went quite a bit farther than that and said there is no automatic justification for coercion. We have to find some additional justification for coercion. Adaptiveness the relatively absolute absolutes. And I'm going to try to define that in a way that makes sense to you, although it is a very frustrating part of Buchanan's thought. Ethical neutrality. You always start from where you are. And it's an interesting part of Jim's thought that he took from Vixell the notion of unanimity. But for Vixell, what he was looking for, the reason he wanted unanimity was to give consent. And so once you have consent, someone who breaks an agreement, if I actually consent to an agreement, if I break it, you might have some cause for coercing me. But it's very difficult to get consent. We usually do some sort of tap dance where we say it's tacit consent or a majority stands in. But if you're only using a majority, that means that 49% might not have agreed and they're being forced against their will. Well, one of the things that Buchanan often would do is to say we're not going to get consent at the level of outcomes. We're going to get consent at the level of rules. So I agree to the rules, and then even if I disagree with the outcome, it's okay because I consented to the rules. What Jim really did, as I understand it, was more that we have the rules that we have, we have the history that we have, and what I would like to do is get unanimous consent to change them. We are, we start from where we are. So what requires unanimous consent is any change to that. Yes, it may well be that the distribution of property rights, wealth, and power is in some sense unjust, and we can attribute it to justices and slights that either 10 years ago, 100 years ago, let's just start from where we are. And we should improve it from there. And then fourth, subjectivism. The system produces utility flows, and individuals are the best judges of the values of those flows, full stop. And there is some question about the extent of Buchanan's subjectivism, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But, so this is the outline of the rest of my talk. I think Pete said I had until 5. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, 5 tomorrow. Now, some of, to walk home, <laughs> some of what I'm going to talk about comes from a source a lot of you probably don't know, and there's, as far as I know, there's no transcript of it, but Liberty Fund did a remarkable two-part intellectual conversations uh, in their series of intellectual conversations where uh, my Duke colleague Jeffrey Brennan interviews uh, Professor Buchanan, and in it, it gets from him, because Brennan knew Buchanan well as a longtime co-author and colleague, actually gets from him some pretty deep insights 
to actually use it in class. The, it's two hours of conversation. It touches on many topics. I transcribed some parts of it, and the, you can't really see, but the, the two links are there in the PowerPoint. It's also easy enough to find. But that's my source for some of what I'm going to do now. But I, one more thing, one more piece of background before I start, was one of Jim's favorite metaphors to quote was Nietzsche's conception of windows. And this is a pretty good example of the two opposed ideas being held at the same time, or the relatively absolute absolutes. So was Jim a relativist, subjectivist, or an objectivist? And the answer is absolutely. Now the reason that that was so frustrating was Jim identified from this passage from Nietzsche a metaphor that I think is really pretty important. And that is that we look at the world through different windows. And when we read it, so the same spirit or will of knowing has at its service an apparently opposed impulse of the spirit, a suddenly adopted preference of ignorance. So this, Jim was worried that this is a description of economics. There's just some stuff we're not going to work on. Of arbitrary shutting out, a closing of windows, an inner denial of this or that, a prohibition to approach a sort of defensive attitude against much that is knowable. So what Jim wanted was for all the windows to be opened. There's many different windows and views of the world. The world is going to look different from each of those windows with different light, a different perspective, different depth of field, differences in angle. Each window has some claim to validity, to truth, because it's a view of the world. No one window, including public choice theory, can claim exclusive rights to the truth. This sounds relativistic, but there's only one world. There's a bunch of different windows, so the different perspectives are all valid, but there's only one world. There really is an objective truth. We may not be able to perceive it, and the glimpses that we catch through these different windows all have some claim to validity, but they're contestable. That is, I have to prove its value by showing that it predicts or explains. There's an empirical referent, even though he, Jim really didn't like a lot of empirical work in economics because it used that regression stuff. <laughs> but having some sort of empirical reference and recognizing there is an objective world underlying it, which we can perceive only imperf imperfectly, because we all look at it through these different distorted windows. But in principle, we might start by assuming everyone is completely public interested and see what implications we get from that. Everything is always a question you get to ask. So he got that from Frank Knight. Nothing is sacrosanct, nothing is beyond question. So, philosophical anarchism. Now this is a quote from Jim, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I wanted to get it enough out there so you could get the background. So we need to go back to the libertarian strand. This is his world, libertar words, libertarian strand. There is no justification for anyone coercing anyone else. So if you're not going to coerce someone, what can you do? Well, you have to exchange with them. 
you engage in reciprocal relations, one person with another person, and you build that up. You start getting more complex and more complex, and ultimately you end up in a situation where we are participating in a big exchange in which we're all sharing in a, in a commonality or a government of politics and so forth. So you start with the idea that coercion is never justified in advance on any grounds. Unless you can bring in some transcendental purpose, how can you justify coercion? So unless God's rules or right reason or some kind of a priori doctrine justifies force, you can't have coercion. So since I was trained as an economist, it was easy to move into this sort of exchange version of politics. So I actually think that in terms of political scientists and philosophers accepting this view, it's a mistake to call it exchange. What he should have called it was cooperation. Because actually what he means is something much more like cooperation. It doesn't have to be an explicit exchange the way that it is in a market. What it is is a group of people who come up with an agreement. And one of the homely examples that he, was used, he would use is, suppose we have a problem with mosquitoes. Well, if we have a problem with mosquitoes, then everybody in this little neighborhood has to get rid of all their spare tires that's collecting water in the low places, the puddles. It doesn't take much for mosquitoes to be able to breed. But if I do it and you don't, it's not going to help much because mosquitoes fly around. We all have to do it. We'd all be better off if we can come to an agreement which, where we have to pay a fine or some sort of punishment if we don't do what, in fact, we all in advance want to do. But there's always the problem of free riding. I would prefer all of you get rid of the mosquitoes, and I'll, there'll probably be some reduction. I, I don't have to get rid of mine. So that's not exactly exchange. It's more like cooperation. But it, that's the essence of the sort of thing that he meant. Second, the relatively absolute absolutes. He said, I couldn't live without the relatively absolute absolutes. It gets me out of a lot of jams. Gets me off a lot of hooks, too. But it's a concept that I picked up directly from Frank Knight and Henry Simons. Prevents the necessity of taking a position either as a relativist in all respects or as an absolutist. I am neither. It's an in-between position. There are some moral values that have been in existence a long time that have been proved by the test of history. It is best to live our ordinary lives by treating those as relatively absolute absolutes. But they are not beyond examination. Nothing is sacrosanct. At one level of our existence, you can evaluate those. You can say, are they really as stable, authoritative, or unchallengeable as they might seem? We can challenge them in the academy. That's the job of the academy. But at the same time, that's not just going out and saying anything goes at all. So it gets you off that terrible problem of becoming a relativist or an absolutist. So you're not the sort of caricature of Burke where we have these traditions that come down to us from the past, and we must obey them. We don't understand them, but we must obey them. And Hayek actually runs into this problem, too. We have these traditions, and slavery is one of them. Well, that's a bad one. How do you know? Well, Buchanan's answer is you have to question all of them, but mostly obey them. So one of the questions Doug North always asked is, why is it that ideologies always last so long until they don't? Well, institutions don't break like steel. They break like glass. They shatter. And so it's interesting that we have this notion that we should follow the rules that we have tradition, and that's mostly true. It's also true that some of them are bad. The way that we determine which ones are bad is by examination, and nothing is sacrosanct. So that can be really frustrating if you think, ah, Jim must agree with me. He's a relativist. Or he's a traditionalist. He's not. 
he pretty much sold everybody out because he had these two opposed ideas in his mind at the same time, and he didn't crack up. Some of his listeners did, but he did not. And then ethical neutrality. So you start with the idea that coercion is never justified in advance. Unless you can bring in some transcendental purpose, how can you justify coercion? So if you say values start with us, start with the individuals, then how can one individual legitimately coerce another? Well, that would seem to be in contradiction with his claim that we have these rules and tradition that come down from the past that we are going to accept. Because values start with us. Well, if values start with us and you take that too far, you get the French Revolution and you redo the, the calendar starting at zero. Time starts with us. Before us, none of these things happen. So Burke's response to the French Revolution was, these are just castles built on sand. You don't have any of the traditions working for you. So the Hayekian response would be, nobody's smart enough to come up with a set of rules that are going to give us a discovery process that takes all of this knowledge and information that is so widely dispersed and put it together in a way that we can use it. We're going to rely on the emergent properties of the rules that are handed down from the past. But values start with us. Now, it may be, so what, what Buchanan is talking about is we have to decide, are we going to continue to accept these traditions with a strong presumption in favor? The thing that's so frustrating about listening with this is he doesn't mean values start with us, let's go have a meeting and make up all the laws. What he means is values start with us, we have to decide which of the things handed down from the past we're going to continue to accept and which ones we're going to ask questions about. And that's, that's a completely different thing. And then subjectivism. I came to believe the only mode for individual choices was utility flows. I was sympathetic to that because Frank Knight himself had sort of verged over into that. He had a review of Vicksteed's book in which he almost bought into that. But he never quite got away from the standard equilibrium models. And neither have I. And that's one reason that I've been able to go forward a little bit and still be a subjectivist, is that I haven't fully bought into the Wiseman, Shackle, Lachman were frustrated. They just sort of threw up their hands. A full-fledged subjectivist, you can't say anything. And so I've been able to say something and yet at the same time be completely sympathetic to their view. So several times he would say that he considered himself a subjectivist. So, and this is from uh, an interview in the Austrian Economics Newsletter. I am certainly much closer to Shackle than I am to the mainstream. I've been tempted to go completely along with Shackle and become a very radical subjectivist. But I recognize if you go all the way down that road, you end up with a nihilistic position. I'm somewhere between von Mises and Jaeger on the one hand and Shackle on the other. The person who comes closest to my methodological position is Jack Wiseman. Well, Jack Wiseman's a full-blown radical subjectivist. So, it's very frustrating to read Buchanan on this question because he's slippery. This is a relatively absolute, absolute question. He is a subjectivist as long as he can. But you can always push him into some sort of objective reality because there's only one world. So all of us have these different windows that we look through. That's what we see. That's what our objectives are. But there is an underlying objective world. And it seems like it's a contradiction, but in fact, it's just a tension. And he wants to try to have it both ways. So there are limits on behavioral symmetry. 
And this, I think, is a really deep challenge to what many people think of as the correct view of public choice. And my friend Dan Damico actually said public choice is only behavioral symmetry. It's simply the idea that it's the, the application of economics to politics. So the claim that politicians and bureaucrats are simply like the rest of us, well, there are no more saints in politics than in commerce. But that's not enough. If you start thinking about politics that way, then you have a very empty type of theory. You have to try to explain political structure, political order from some kind of perspective that will give you something other than an empty theory. At some ultimate level, people must enter into, polit into politics for mutual gain. There must be a shared benefit from being involved in organized governments. So what must be added to politics without romance? That piece is the idea that politics is in some ultimate sense an exchange process. You have to enter, you have to enter into a shared enterprise with other people. Without that, you have no means of justifying any political coercion of any person by another. He's definitely not an anarchist. He's a philosophical anarchist. And if you press him, you can make him sound like a political anarchist, but he'll always pull back from that because he's slippery. It's a relatively absolute absolutes question. So one way to find out what he wasn't was to ask him if that's what he was. Nope. Whatever it was, nope, that's not me. Because there was always some part of some other window, some other perspective that he wanted to preserve that he thought still had value. So still on behavioral symmetry, if all you do is assume that political actors are self-interested, you have no hope. It's a council of despair. You have to be very skeptical about the motivations of the behavior of politicians and bureaucrats, but also recognize that, in fact, there can be gains to all of us from sharing in a political enterprise. And we can lay on, we can construct schemes where, whereby everybody benefits. Everybody puts in and everybody benefits. What I would call a Madisonian element that needs to be added to make public choice work. So this is, this should be more recognized than it is in, in political science. I really do think that it was calling it exchange rather than cooperation that had a lot to do with it. But it is interesting that this is kind of an optimistic view of the role of the state, potentially at least. So on Jim's own view, Jeff Brennan asked, well, but that, what you're talking about then allows infringements on liberty. Your interpretation of liberty and how liberty is to be structured seems to depend on getting constitutional consensus around it. So how does your libertarianism, which is undoubted, sit with the logic of contractarianism? So how can you be both a natural rights libertarian and a contractarian? And perhaps unsurprisingly, he waffles. I acknowledge there's a tension, a possible contradiction there. I could respond in part by saying it's the constitutionalist that's primary, and the libertarianism is secondary. But he's too honest to go that way. That, that, would have, that would have been what most people would say. Well, but that's not necessarily the case. In many cases, my libertarianism might trump my constitutionalism. So if you could observe a constitutional consensus developing in, on some restrictions on individual liberty that I might be very strangely opposed, strongly opposed to, then I wouldn't be in the consensus, but you might have an overwhelming consensus view. So it's the consensus that's binding, not natural rights, even though he had his own views on natural rights. The source of political authority is consensus. 
the only source of political authority is consensus. Now, that's sufficient. I think there's an interesting question about what's necessary, since that's clearly not possible for large nations. But if we have a group and we've all agreed, we have all made an agreement, then we can be punished or coerced if we violate that agreement, which we made with informed consent. So there are conditions under which that's true. The question is, is there any other justification for coercion? So I was struck by this claim that he makes, if you could observe a constitutional consensus developing on some restrictions on individual liberty that I might be very strongly opposed to, he would say I'm actually obliged to obey the consensus even if I disagree with it. That may sound familiar, because that's Rousseau. There is but one law from which, which from its nature needs unanimous consent. This is the social compact. For civil association is the most voluntary of all acts. Every man being born free in his own master, no one under any pretext whatsoever can make any man subject without his consent. If then there are opponents when the social compact is made, their opposition does not invalidate the contract but merely prevents them from being included in it. They are foreigners among citizens. When the state is instituted, residence constitutes consent. To dwell within its ter territory is to submit to the sovereign. So I'm obliged to obey even if I disagree. And I, all the many times I had read Du Contrat Social, had never noticed this footnote. This is Rousseau now. This should, of course, be understood as applying to a free state, for elsewhere, family goods Lack of a refuge, necessity, or violence may detain a man in a country against his will. And then his dwelling there no longer by itself implies his consent. There has to be an exit option. So one of the things that Buchanan was fascinated by in institutional terms was federalism, because it meant the exit option was easier. You get the states and the local polities to compete with each other, at least in the extent to which they repress their citizens. You can only repress your citizens so much because you can go somewhere else. Barry Weingast has talked about market preserving federalism. The level of taxes and regulations are limited by the fact that I can take my corporation somewhere else, but only if there's an exit option. So I went, I read Buchanan and thought, gosh, he's just like Rousseau, and then found that Rousseau was more of a Buchananite than I expected. There has to be an exit option. He's actually taking a lot of this back. That's pretty sensible. So if exit is so difficult or expensive, well, of course, then residence does not imply consent. Good for you there, Jean-Jacques. <laughs> so the two contradictory positions are not contradiction. It's actually just a fierce consistency that's admirable. It takes quite a bit of courage to say, I am bound by an agreement I disagree with because that's not the majority, but essentially a consensus. There's almost a majority of this. So he recognized the problems with requiring true majorities, you know, the curve in the calculus of consent where you get the external and internal costs, the costs of making agreements, and a single holdout can prevent us from getting uh, consensus or unanimity, and so that's too expensive. So if there's an essential consensus, I'm actually bound by it even if I disagree with it. That's not the sort of position that I think most people associate with Buchanan's thought, but it's clearly where he ends up. And it's for logical reasons. So it's not a contradiction at all, it's just consistency. He has his own views. He wants to try to persuade people that they're correct. 
But if almost everyone disagrees, it's as if he's wrong. I accept the fact that I am, I am bound by this agreement. So he was personally, subjectively, a philosophical anarchist. But he was a contractarian and believed that a sufficient condition to justify coercion was actual unanimous consent or something close to it. So consent, though, does require provisions for exit. And of course, forced membership is actually a restriction on exit. If, if we say you have to be a member of this county because you live here, that's really a restriction on exit. So Buchanan agrees that groups could form and could coerce their members to be, for example, pure communists, prohibit private property. So if a group of people get together and this is what they've agreed on, and there's some reasonable provisions for exit, okay, I don't want to live there, but as long as I don't have to, it's okay. There's nothing in principle or ex ante or natural law that would say you can't do that. So it's a, it's a, the, the freedom of association and the contractarian part of this is dominant. Now, there is the problem with tacit consent that David Hume also recognized in, of the original contract, and you, you probably recall what Hume says is, because this is the question of tacit consent, so I, I live under the dominion of a prince, which you can just leave, every individual is given his tacit consent to that authority, can we seriously say that a poor peasant or artisan has a free choice to leave his country when he knows no foreign language or manners and lives from day to day by the small wages? Forgive me, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Does anybody know any jokes? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've lost my place. This is it, thank you. I knew that. So we may as well assert that a man, by remaining in a vessel, freely consents to the dominion of the master, though he was carried on board while asleep and must leap into the ocean and perish the moment that he leaves her. So, I didn't actually consent. In the absence of actual consent, I'm not obliged. And that means that we can't use tacit consent as a justification for political authority. Now, Buchanan would agree with that. The question is what to do in that sort of situation, though. What should the captain do? Is it mutiny when the person who didn't consent refuses to obey orders? I guess the, the, the thing is don't carry people who are asleep onto your ship. That's a bad idea. So Brennan asks, the ultimate question of natural rights is not the issue. The issue is whether we can get a consensus on that particular proposal at the appropriately constitutional level. And Buchanan says, that's right. There may be activities that we simply, we, this is so cool, we, who's this we? That we simply do not approve of, that are ruled out by consensus. Question is, can we agree to more or less reach a substantial consensus? Well, how many is that? It's not unanimity. We're going to more or less reach a substantial consensus on what the list of political and economic rights should be. So values start with us. The list of political and economic rights are the result, yes, of the traditions that come down from the past, but also our examination of what things we, there's a consensus that we think the group should have. Now, we don't want some people going around and saying people shouldn't have rights just because they happen not to like it or they happen to get in charge. On the other hand, we certainly want, if there's a consensus, we just don't want it to happen. So things that there's a consensus against are okay, even if they violate economic or political liberties. 
Consensus is the touchstone that he comes back to over and over again. So there's a difference, he says, between my position and the Rawls position. Whereas I can sense the tension between my contractarian position and the libertarian position, and not only the tension, but will grant that the contract dominates. Unless I can persuade other people, that's sort of the essential libertarian position, coercion's never justified. Meaning, I can't even coerce you if you're wrong. You can coerce me if you all agree, if I'm outside the, coerce, outside the agreement. It's a pretty interesting position. So Rawls is enough of a Kantian to believe that, we're, that there are somehow these ideal precepts out there that he's searching, he's searching toward. He's trying to ground that in his ultimate personal values, whereas I would never go beyond that point. So a key difference is Buchanan would never impose even his values on other people, although if you disagreed with him, he would argue with you pretty strongly and maybe get angry about it. But in principle, I could never impose those values on you. I have to persuade you. I don't think there's any clearly defined set of rights that you can delineate independently of a consensus or constitution. So it's that last sentence that's the money quote. I don't think there is any clearly defined set of rights that you can delineate independently of a consensus or a constitution. So I have a metaphor that I have tried to use to explain what I think is the tension in Jim's thought, and it's Hayek University. At Hayek University, where do you put the sidewalks? Well, here's what happens when you try to think you know where to put the sidewalks. I'm actually a collector of these pictures. I look for stuff like this when I go around. So they, you know, it'd be sort of cool to have a circle there and people just walk right across the middle. I just saw this in Canberra. So the, apparently a bunch of bicyclists were going too fast. There was a pretty busy road here. So they put these things up so the bicycles would have to slow down and everybody just went around. <laughs> so it, it's pretty difficult to say we know how this is gonna work. Uh, here, you can't see it that well, but there's a couple of cut-throughs. This is on a, a small campus in uh, Massachusetts. And, well, here, this last one makes it pretty obvious. What the hell? I mean... <laughs> so the answer to the question at Hayek University, where do you put the sidewalks, is, well, it's a trick question. You wait two years, and then you pave the muddy paths. <laughs> because we could never possibly know in advance enough to be able to know where people are gonna to want to walk. And this is not a group of people who got together and said, let's all walk across here. Many individuals walking separately create an emergent order, which is that muddy path. Once we pave that, good. Now, that's, that is a deep insight. That's an important insight. Here's my question at Hayek University. Come on. Where do we put the buildings? Now, I'm, whenever, whenever I think of this, I think of a Monty Python voice. Look there, it, appe it appears to be, it, it is. The sociology department is under that copse of trees. That's where we'll put the sociology department. Said no one ever. And so here, there's a group of faculty, and actually there appears to be a building spontaneously emerging behind them. Well, no, that's actually not 
how it works. There's an architecture that's laid on, like a constitution. So the constitution of the university is something that we sit down, we work out rules, we work out an architecture, we put it together, and then in that framework, yes, things happen. So it's true that the insight about the sidewalks is significant, but it's also true that you can't depend on ignorance to produce wisdom in all institutional settings. Sometimes you need a set of rules that we consciously look at and agree on. So finally, I have, I've always wondered if this was the reason that the Public Choice Center at Virginia Tech is where it ended up. They're, 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 someone noticed Buchanan and Tulloch out in the woods. <laughs> That's where we'll put the Public Choice Center. Okay, maybe not. Um, what I really like about this picture is the sort of body language of these two. It's like two little kids. You're, go out, we're going to take a picture. Go out, go take a picture. So Gordon's like this, and Jim is almost completely turned around. Nonetheless, that tension in that partnership produced some of the most important work in economics and in political science that we still depend on for today, I hope that I've been able to clarify some of not just the tension, but the richness in that body of thought. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.